This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. In this episode, you're going to meet two remarkable women in recovery, both of whom are involved with recovery advocacy, secular recovery options, and reducing the stigma that is unnecessarily associated with addiction and recovery. Mary Beth O'Connor was appointed as a federal judge in 2014 despite a 20-year drug history and addiction to methamphetamine. She serves as a board member for the She Recovers Foundation, and she is also a board member of LifeRing Secular Recovery, and she regularly speaks on behalf of LifeRing. In August of 2020, she wrote an op-ed published in the Wall Street Journal titled, I Beat Addiction Without God. We also have Adrienne Miller, who serves on the board of directors for Women for Sobriety and the Seattle Area Support Groups, now known as Peer Seattle. She has served as a peer support group facilitator for both Peer Seattle and Women for Sobriety before becoming a peer recovery coach. She was appointed president and CEO of Women for Sobriety in 2018 and has dedicated herself to empowering women in recovery. Uh, This is a fascinating conversation. I enjoyed speaking with both of these women. Uh, I started off by asking the question, what is Women for Sobriety? Because I was kind of surprised that it's been around for so long and I had not known anything about it. You know, I didn't know that Women for Sobriety has been around since 1975. That's pretty incredible. I don't know why I didn't know that. But can you can um, you all kind of tell me a little bit about what Women for Sobriety is and a little bit of history behind it? And who would be best to start with that? Probably me. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Mary Beth. <laughs> um, yeah, I call Women for Sobriety the best kept secret in the recovery field. Um, but I am not good at secrets. So I'm out telling the world about women for sobriety. Um, We were founded in 1975 by um, a woman who had gotten sober through AA originally and then um, went back out and was trying to get sober again and just wasn't finding AA was meeting her needs. She was also a sociologist. And so she was really interested in the role of women and how it's different than the role of men in our culture. And of course, in the 70s, was, um, it was kind of in the, the first wave feminist movement um, or second wave feminist movement. Anyway, there was a lot of feminism going yes, on. Yes, there was. So, <laughs> I remember. Was, yeah. And so she was kind of looking at um, the, the dominant paradigm of recovery and, and saying, well, you know, this is not really meeting the needs of women. And um, at that time, you know, now we have women's recovery programs everywhere. There's recovery programs at treatment centers. Back then, there really wasn't. And um, she was looking at some of the statistics and seeing that women were were being labeled as hard to treat or, you know, um, not as responsive to treatment. And her theory was that that might be because they were being treated like men. <laughs> and <laughs> that perhaps women needed something different, right? Um, the, the dominant paradigm was kind of deflating ego, right? And, and building in humility. And she kind of looked at the role of women in our culture and said, wow, I don't think women need help with that. <laughs> uh, I think it's quite the opposite for women, right. right? We need to feel empowered. We need to feel built up. We need to feel a stronger sense of self and self-efficacy. And so the whole program was developed around that concept. 
around women, empowering women to really manifest the life that they want and to start to caretake for themselves in addition to others. Um, and also to kind of address this, this overwhelm that uh, women were feeling, um, especially back then, and it's gotten a little better, but not entirely. Um, you know, where, you know, we bring home the bacon and we fry it up in the pan and we do all the dishes and the laundry and take care of the kids um, and go to work full time. Right. And and this is, you know, it's still like I said, it's getting better, but it's still pretty, pretty common that that women are just kind of the de facto um, home managers in addition to working full time. And so um teaching women and empowering women to kind of take more control of that, take a more proactive approach to problems, um, and then also changing their thinking, right? Rather than have to do all this to, you know, um, and and I'm not good enough to advocate for myself to, hey, I'm I'm a pretty great person and I can advocate for myself and I can create the life that I want. That's really how Women for Sobriety was was founded and uh, that's kind of the goal of the program is to really empower women to take control of their lives. Okay. So is, is it, um, is it purely pure, peer support? And is there some sort of like a program like smart recovery has, or something along those lines that, that, that they follow? Yeah. So we have 13 statements. There are the 13 acceptance statements. And they are um, designed, they're basically affirmations designed to build up a woman's sense of self and self-efficacy. So things like, um, I have a life-threatening problem that once had me, and um, I am what I think. And then also some more kind of pragmatic tools like negative thoughts destroy only myself, and problems bother me only to the degree I permit, right? As we practice these affirmations, then we get better at managing our lives. And so it's, they're not really stepwise. They kind of all work together in this interdependent way um, to help build up a healthy self, a, a sense of self-esteem and self-worth and self-efficacy. Yeah, I like that. You know, um, actually, as I look back on my recovery, I've learned that um, it wasn't really necessarily linear for me. I had a lot of different things going on at one time. And it's, it's kind of nice to take that approach, I think, to kind of incorporate everything together. Um, I think it's really interesting how, so do I understand this right, that Women for Sobriety is kind of teaming up now with LifeRing? Well, so I'll, if you don't mind, I'll answer that one, John. So um, so actually, I have a Women for Sobriety story myself because in my early recovery, when I, which was 93, 94, I was told it, there were 12 steps were it. That was right. the only way. And if I didn't agree with every feature of that, I was going to fail. And so finally, at around six months, I decided to go to the library to look for options because younger people, there was no internet. Okay. So I went to the library and the first um, program I found was Women for Sobriety. They had, um, they had, it was mentioned in the back of a book. And so I had to write to them or call an 800 number to get the materials. And, um, and Women for Sobriety is so is part of my personal story. And, and the, what I really remember from the beginning was when I walked into the rooms and I got to announce myself for the first time, the Women for Sobriety way, which is instead of saying, I'm Mary Beth and, and I'm an addict, you say, I'm Mary Beth and I'm a competent woman. And that was just such a powerful statement 
excitement for me. And so I, I participated in Women for Sobriety and other programs and pulled out a lot of their ideas and used a lot of their ideas. And so when I wrote my Wall Street Journal piece, I Beat Addiction Without God, I mentioned Women for Sobriety in it, as I always do when I tell my personal story, because they're part of my history. And so I, um, I thought, oh, well, the WFS might be interested. So I sent it to them and said, hey, FYI, heads up, you're in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, they posted it to their social media. And and I started talking with Adrian. And we started talking, you know, we're both from recovery organizations with similar challenges and similar, you know, advantages or ideas. We just started threshing out ideas and having conversations. Like when COVID hit, we talked about how are you adjusting to Zoom? What are your tech technical issues? How 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 are your um, members responding to being online? All of those types of things. So we started just, you know, being mutual support, sharing ideas. And then um, I thought, you know, maybe it would be a good idea if Adrian and I sort of try to do a, a little road show, uh, you know, a road tour and get some joint interviews because we can speak about Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, She Recovers, and just multiple paths to recovery in general, which is really a, an important message that I know both of us want to get out. Yeah, you know, we actually, I think, live in a pretty good time for someone who wants to be in recovery. So I got sober also prior to the internet back in 1988. And at that time, um, all I knew was what Dear Abby would tell me in the newspaper, which was go to AA. <laughs> you know, and that was pretty much what they had. But um, it's incredible what we have now. And in some ways, I think COVID has kind of helped with this um, by connecting us um, even more so on the internet. And um, I don't know, people are, I think, learning that they can, there's all kinds of different, different um, options available now that we didn't really have access to much before. That's, that's right. And, and I will say as well, She Recovers, for example, is a multiple paths organization. So many members of She Recovers also belong to Women for Sobriety. And Life Ring is actually open to members going to multiple organizations as well. Um, from a Life Ring point of view, whatever is going to help you succeed, we're in support of that. So there are definitely Life Ring members that do 12 Steps, Life Ring members that do WFS. So the organizations that we're affiliated with are open to all paths. You know, what, what, whatever is going to be a benefit to that individual is really what we want them to know about so they can find the, the systems and the ideas that are going to help them succeed. Right. And Life Ring specifically set out to be secular, right? Yes. Yes. So when I met Life Ring, um, when I got sober, it, it was really, at the time, it was Secular Organization for Sobriety. That was the name of the organization. And Life Ring broke off in 97. And SOS has just a few meetings left. Really, Life Ring is sort of the surviving entity. And um, so, yeah, so that was my exposure. The philosophy was very similar to Life Ring, but, but Life Ring's a little bit different as uh, it sort of more explicitly talks about a personal recovery plan, which is where you pull, you know, you build your, Life Ring believes that each individual knows what's best for her and um, we, tr and can develop the plan that's going to be the right fit, right? I mean, I know sort of, what my goals are, where I am, where I need, where I want to go, and and I can figure out how to get there. Now that doesn't mean alone. You can ask for ideas, and you know we encourage you to read and attend meetings and um, get support from the people around you. But ultimately, 
it's like WFS, it's a self-empowerment program. It's your motivation and your efforts that will bring you to success. And we believe that you're not powerless. And in fact, it's important to fight for your sobriety. You know, I had the opportunity to meet Robert Stump from Life Ring. I wonder if you uh, might yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. yeah, he was really interesting to talk to. And he gave me a little bit of the history behind Life Ring, which I did not know of. And uh, it was really good to kind of get that education. So now what about She Recovers, the She Recovers Foundation? How do they fit into all of this? So She Recovers is broader than just substance use disorder. A lot of women in recovery probably, you know, most, um, they also have other challenges. For example, many have trauma histories like I do or child abuse histories or um, mental health challenges. People have just grief and, you know, eating disorders, all types of challenges that they face. And in, and She Recovers is really for any of those or any different combination. And so I, I think about 75% of the members have a substance use disorder, but not everyone does. And I would guess that 99% of the members have more than one little box that they can check um, as to challenges that they face. And so She Recovers is about also about self-empowerment, but it, it supports multiple paths. Members often do other programs as well. Um, and we have some guiding principles, which, you know, includes the belief that we're all recovering from something that has a lot of self-empowerment um, pillars believes in early intervention to the extent possible and really believes that the women are stronger together, that, you know, supporting each other is the way that we can find strength, the way that we get the confidence and the sort of the skills and the ideas to move forward. And Adrian, you got involved in peer and peer support uh, recovery, uh, which I'm interested in. I, I went through the, um, uh, here I live in Missouri, so I, I got my license, I guess, or credentials as a peer support specialist in Missouri and learned a lot from it. And I've been in recovery for a long time, but um, what what that has done for me anyway is it's opened me up to people throughout my state who are bringing in different different ways that people you can bring recovery to people and different ideas, you know. Um, that I'd never had really considered before, but they're truly, truly trying to meet people where they are and finding a path that works for that person, whether it be, you know, harm reduction or, you know, whatever that person might need for their recovery. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your experience with that, with peer support. Yeah. So um, I actually, I'm, I'm no longer on the board of, of peer Seattle. I was when they were um, Seattle area support groups and they actually started as Seattle AIDS support groups. And so they were built on the model um, developed during the AIDS crisis. You know, there was a lot of um, gay men and, and other people who were, you know, going through this, this dying process who were, um, you know, shunned from their families and didn't have a lot of support. And so that community really came together to build some incredible peer support. And I had the honor of being involved in that kind of peripherally through a parent who had HIV. And um, so that that was the foundation of that organization, but they kind of broadened out into um, addictions as well as as the AIDS crisis waned and and they they needed other things to do. Luckily, so um, I got involved there as a peer facilitator first for a group, and then became a peer recovery coach. And um, I love the peer recovery coach movement, and that's really what why they shifted to Peer Seattle, and now they do. Um, a lot of peer coaching and it really is about what's going to work for the person in front of you 
um, where are they at, meeting them where they are at, and um, and how can we connect them to different to the resources that they need to build their recovery without projecting our own beliefs and our own path onto them. Um, yeah, it's something I never considered was having a goal in recovery, you know, like helping people say, so what is your goal? What is your goal? I never, I never even thought in terms of that, but, and helping people figure out how to, how to reach that goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a great model. Um, and I think as we're, we're seeing it more and more in, you know, different states and we were actually a pilot program, um, in Washington state for, setting up that model. Actually, we were one of the earliest um, your coaching programs. Um, but I really do like the focus on everyone's recovery is going to be different. Everyone came to addiction in a different way. It's weird to think that there's there was a time when we thought everyone in recovery needs the same thing. Right? How could how how could that possibly be? <laughs> so, and what I really like about partnering up with Mary Beth and, you know, it's, it's really an unofficial partnership. We're not, you know, we, we have no contracts. Drawn yet. <laughs> the, the lovely thing about life ring and she recovers is, you know, and, and women for sobriety is we all play well with others, right? We're, we don't have this, you know, this is the way that we recover and you have to do WFS and nothing else. Even back in the 70s, Dr. Kirkpatrick, our founder, was saying, hey, there's not a whole lot of women for sobriety meetings. And if you need to go to an AA meeting or an NA meeting or, you know, some other type of meeting as well to build community, you should do that. Um, and so I really love that that now it's it's getting more and more common and we can, you know, support each other, especially um, some of the the non-traditional options um, that that we can build alliances like this and and join together and say hey come come join us wherever you're mm -hmm. at on your path and and whatever speaks to you that's what you should do and and please feel free to pick the parts of women for sobriety or aa or life ring or whatever that works for you and build your recovery in that way yeah you know uh, it's interesting i was uh, speaking at an aa group uh, the other day and i was talking about how i like to participate in smart recovery and my peer support groups and other other things and somebody somebody suggested that i was just nominally involved in aa and it just kind of it kind of struck me as odd it's like why can't why do i have to be so fully involved to be accepted into your community it just kind of it kind of was a wake up call to me but I wonder, and this might be a question for both of you, if if that mindset that we have of the of that everybody has to have their own track, you know, their own little silo, do you, is that is that is that still the a predominant view in treatment facilities today? Is it getting better? Can you talk about that? I'll go. I'll go first. Um, I'll say so. When I went into rehab in '93, as I said, they told me there was only 12 steps, and even at the time, that was not true. Um, and I th and it is. I think it is better now. I, I mean, they. When I went into my rehab, I didn't know it was a 12 step house. I thought it was a medical facility that I was going to for treatment, and I was really floored that they were only giving me one option, and it was an option that would absolutely was impossible for me to do. That stunned me. Um, 
over time, I think it's gotten better. On the other hand, uh, we still get a lot of members in LifeRing where they are told by their recovery house or even by um, by a, a treatment center like Kaiser, some of the facilities, that they have to do 12 steps. They have to have a sponsor. They have to work steps. Well, if you want to go to these other things on the side, maybe we'll let them sign the paper for you, but you still can't graduate if you don't do all these other things. And there are still a number of facilities that are primarily 12 steps or exclusively. So it is an ongoing issue. On the other hand, I mean, I speak regularly at two treatment facilities and LifeRing's been invited into many more treatment facilities over the past few years to make sure that even if we don't have a regular meeting that we get to present, say, once a month so they know that there are other options out there and that when they leave the facility, they can find the program that they want to build for themselves that's going to work best. What about you, Adrian? Have you guys had a similar experience? Yeah, you know, I worked as, as after I was a coach, I became a, a, a counselor um, for a few years before I came to WFS um, as an employee. And I was very hopeful when I joined that, you know, multiple pathways were, were being acknowledged. I was surprised at how many 12-step concepts are presented as mm-hmm. kind of gospel, kind of researched truth in a lot of the um, training materials for counselors a lot of the textbooks and stuff you know they just you know they talk about spirituality as if this you know turning your your will and your life over to a higher power is, is somehow just an implicit part of recovery and so i found that a little bit frustrating and you know we would get maybe you know a paragraph or two about women for sobriety a paragraph or two about smart recovery maybe a paragraph or two about life ring or whatever in these textbooks but so many 12-step concepts that weren't a part of my recovery and I know are not a part of everyone's recovery um, were really just presented as facts about recovery and so I think we get this this cycle of you know people um, in AA, you know, uh, I don't remember which step it is, but, you know, to carry the message um, and they become counselors and and their recovery is what they know, right? And so they share that with their, their patients. And so I think it becomes this kind of self-perpetuating cycle. And there were treatment centers that I worked at that were certainly very open. In fact, one brought me in because I had all this knowledge about all these other pathways and I was such an advocate for other pathways. But over and over, when I would start at a new place, they would say, oh, are you in the program? And I would say, I'm in the WFS program. Yes, I'm in the WFS program. And other counselors would literally ask me, what is that? And I found that very, very, I found it a little bit demoralizing. I found it very motivating, right? Okay, let's let's educate you. Here's what women for sobriety is. Um, and it, I'm sure that it's changing. But um, when I went to treatment, I called women for sobriety and I said, hey, do you know of any treatment centers that offer women for sobriety in my state? And um, they said, no. And they said, print up as much as you can from our website and bring it with you because you will probably have to educate your counselor about what Women for Sobriety is. Yeah. 
Isn't that amazing so, that somebody who's in the field? <laughs> needs, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and there, there's a lot of people in the field um, who they just don't know. You know, they know AA worked for them or NA worked for them, and that's what they know, and that's what they teach. So I think it it is getting more and more common to see other things offered as an option. But often it is like, oh, if you want to do this too, you can, you know, but sponsorship is a key part of recovery. Mm -hmm. Finding your higher power is a key part of recovery. Some of these concepts that are very, very specific to the 12 step tradition um, are being taught as just a part of recovery. And you're not doing recovery if you're not doing those things. And that is concerning to me because, you know, I've never written my entire drug and alcohol history. I've never given my will in life over to the power, to a higher power. Um, I've never had a sponsor, right? So it's concerning to me that there are still a lot of professionals out there who that's just, yeah, that's how you do recovery. Yeah. And someday I'd like to do an episode on sponsorship um, in, in a, in 12 step programs, because there's actually a dangerous component of that as well. <laughs> that You know, um, it, it can get a little bit crazy. Um, so that's something that, you know, I, that, that I, I, I'm still involved in 12 step community. And that's something that we are very aware of that. That's not always such a great relationship when you have that sponsor. Um, also, you know what I find interesting, Mary Beth, when you you might know more about this, but um, legally now, um, a lot of courts, you know, they used to like. Uh, I think in my day, when I when I, when I had a, my DWI, they said you need to start going to AA meetings and have this paper signed. They can't really do that anymore, can they? Well, no, they're not supposed to. So there is clear case law from basically every court that I know of that's looked at it that has found that the 12 steps are religious because of the higher power component. So they can they can allow you, let's say it's a drug court, you know, if they have a list and it has 12 steps and the other options and they let any of them sign off, that's okay because they're not promoting the religion. But unfortunately, it can be a real fight in some jurisdictions to be allowed to have anything other than AA or NA sign off on the slip. And so Lifering has at times sent letters, you know, reminding them of their legal obligations. I know that there is some uh, some humanist legal arm. They've um, t- taken this up and done some cases and sent letters. But it can be a challenge for people. And realize these individuals, in they're, they're vulnerable, right? They're under some court mandate. And it's very difficult to challenge that. Uh, I know that we had a life ring member who was in jail and they were giving credit, like, like good time credit that reduced your sentence if you went to the 12 step meeting, but they wouldn't give credit for doing any other type of recovery. Well, that's, you know, that's problematic. So it's still, it's still a struggle. It's still a fight, but Every court that I know that has looked at it has found that the 12 steps are faith-based, sure. their, their religion. You know, what's interesting, I learned just from my um, association with, the, with my peers in Missouri, is that um, we have laws on the books in Missouri that say that jails, for example, can't prevent, can't keep someone from taking medication that helps them through their drug withdrawals and so forth. But even though we have books, we have laws in the books, the jails, if they don't know about those laws, they take their, they take these meds away from people. So it's like, um, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of work being done in my state of just trying to educate the people who run the jails that say, listen, you can't take these medications away from people. You know, have you, have you run across that? I haven't heard about that one. No, okay. I haven't heard about that one. 
But yeah, I'm glad it, that people are making the effort to make sure that people get what they're legally entitled to. <laughs> yeah, there's a mindset yeah. that medication is somehow bad. Yeah, I worked at a methadone clinic for a while, and um, I wrote a lot of letters for clients who were who, who were going to jail, and you know, letting advocating for you know they need to be given their medication while they're in jail, right? This is this is the medication that that they're they're legally entitled to. And, and in fact, we had, we knew the jails in the area that would dose their, would provide the medication to people that were there and, and the ones that wouldn't. And so part of my letter that I would write to the judge would be, you know, please, please remand this client to this location to, to serve their time so that they can get their medication because they need to get their medication. It was you know, not what one would expect their job to be as a counselor um, to advocate. Of course, a lot of my clients would say, well, can't you tell them I can't go to jail because I need my medication? No, I can't tell them that. <laughs> but I can recommend that you go, you know, to, to this location for your incarceration so that you can um, still get your medication. But it is, yeah, it's, it's a big thing. And, you know, the other thing, the way um, that a lot of it, um, happens in Washington state anyway, is that the courts, um, like I know you get a DUI, you, you choose, you choose your own treatment program. Say if you're, you know, you're doing an IOP program, an outpatient program, um, to get educated and to help you stop drinking because of a DUI, you can pick your treatment program. If you don't know that certain treatment programs rely on the 12 steps, then you might just sign up for one. And so it's, and that, and those treatment programs can require that you go to AA and will and not accept any other notes. So, so in effect, the courts are outsourcing the AA requirement, right? So the courts aren't requiring people to go to AA and they're, but they're requiring that they go to treatment and someone who's vulnerable and it's, you know, facing the overwhelming legal issues involved with the DUI and trying to get sober at the same time. You know, they find a treatment program and they, they enroll in it. And that treatment program doesn't give them any options and says we will only accept um, slips signed at AA meetings or NA meetings. And so it's a strange little way of kind of getting around the law. The, the judge didn't say you have to go to AA but they, they end up in this situation where they have to go to AA. And to change treatment centers in the middle of treatment um, is often seen as, as a negative uh, by the courts when you're in a DUI um, uh, legal engagement. So, but we, we, um, we were contacted by, and I don't know if um, LifeRing was, we were contacted by Smart Recovery. They're working on um, some advocacy for a law that's that's up for ratification or whatever you call it in New York. Yes, that yes. would require um, judges to say, "Here's the program that we are recommending for you. It has. A, do you have any religious objections to it?" Which I think yeah. is just, it's a great first step, right? Because when you're before a judge and the judge is saying, you know, we want you to go to this program, you're not gonna. You may not think to say. Hey, is that is is that a religious <laughs> right, program? And right. I don't want to go to that, right? 
right? You no, just say, exactly. I just don't want to go to jail. So just whatever else I can do. <laughs> <laughs> but this, this law in New York would, at, would be proactive. The judges would have to recommend, would have to um, ask point blank. That's my understanding of it. And Mary Beth, I know you have a stronger legal background than I. Yeah. So. That's basically, and we signed off on it. Several of the board members for LifeRing signed off on it as well. And I will just say, you know, other than the law, this approach of mandating one option just concerns me at a more fundamental level, right? I mean, I was in rehab for literally one day and they were doing the step step three, turn my will and my life over to God of my understanding or whatever it is. And they told me on day one, I had to comply or I was going to fail. Now, that is a horrible message to tell someone who's trying to get recovery. And, and so to me, I, I really, I support the 12 steps if it's a good fit for people, I have no, I'm, I'm happy if people find a place they're comfortable and they can get the recovery. I truly am. But any environment which suggests that the 12 steps are better or the only option, those are just false statements. Those statements are not true. And you are interfering with people's ability to find the right fit for them. And you're interfering with their likelihood of success by not offering them options that will be a better fit for some of them. Boy, isn't that the truth? Um, I wonder now, uh, Life Ring and Women for Sobriety, they're self-empowering programs. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the importance of that. And and probably if if, if it is more important maybe for women than men. On the on the surface, well, I and I will say that I think all recovery paths do lead to empowerment. Um, eventually, I think on the surface, WFS appears more empowering, right? I think ma- many people who recover in the twelve steps feel very empowered, and and um, but when you look at say the statements versus the steps, the statements are on the surface empowering. And I think that really is attractive to women. And we find that especially, you know, women with um, domestic violence histories um, or um, sex work histories or whatever, they, they find that empowerment very, very important and a very important aspect. And we've seen there's, there's research out there that shows that a sense of self-efficacy and a sense of empowerment and a sense of um, control is, is, correlated with better recovery outcomes right um that's that is supported by research so um i think it's it's really important that people feel empowered and feel like they have that control i don't want to feel like you know i could just drink tomorrow i feel like hey i can probably stay sober the rest of my life i have to keep doing all the right things but i can pretty easily say like I don't think I'm ever going to drink again because I put all the things in place in my life and that's not that's not me you know getting complacent or you know false pride that's just me saying like I have a realistic view of what it takes and I'm willing to do the things that it takes and for life, we, we're, our philosophy is based on three S's, um, sobriety, secularity, and self-empowerment is our third S. And that's tied to the personal recovery plan. And when I talk, I talk a lot about the benefits, right? For one thing, there's a, a self-knowledge benefit to, to taking control of your recovery. I mean, you're really doing the analysis about, you know, again, who you are, where you want to go, how you think you can get there, what, 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 are, even what are my priorities? I mean, early recovery, most of us have broken so many 
parts of our lives. We can't fix everything at once. You have to make choices about where to focus your efforts first. And then as time goes by, modify your plan as you've had some achievements. All that's important. So there's the the self-knowledge aspect from doing the analysis, but it can also create a, a sense of ownership right? That you actually develop this plan, you own it, and it can that can help with resiliency. If you're sort of knocked off track, if you're at risk, if this is your plan, your choice, you know, it, it can be easier to, to get back on track. But Adrian's also right. So to me, the self-empowerment part of, of, of recovery is sort of practice grounds for the rest of your life. Because if you, if you gain confidence that you can make good choices and guide yourself forward and you get to practice that and experience that success and recovery, well, those are the same skills and techniques you can apply to the rest of your life, to all the other areas of your life. And that's, to me, how you get what I like to call big R recovery, right? Which is recovery in every area of your life and, and that strong, solid foundation. One can lead to the other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I got sober um, when I, I when I was 25 years old. I'm 59 now. So that's a huge long time ago. But um, I often think back to my younger self when I was getting sober and the messages that I was given. And it was all about I needed to some, somehow tear myself down to build myself up. And the problem with that was I was already torn down. And I, I look back at that time and I'm amazed that I lived through it. But I think what, what really saved me was what was going on when these people weren't grabbing me and taking me to the corner and telling me how screwed up I was. But when I was just kind of hanging out with my friends after those meetings <laughs> is what really helped me out more than anything. But yeah, I, I just, you know, I talked to someone, a friend of mine um, who wrote a book. Um, I think it's titled, We're Not All Egomaniacs. And she's talking about how, you know, you can look at, in her um, instance, she's looking at 12 steps, but from the perspective of of building self-esteem as someone with low self-esteem. And that was just such a great way of looking at it that it would have saved me, I think, a lot of time if I would have had a more self-empowering message um, from other people rather than hearing the, I can't trust my thinking, and you just need to <laughs> find God. <laughs> so, so anyway, I'm not trying to put it down. And I know that's we're not here for that. And you're not, are you? You're not here to suggest that there's anything wrong with 12 steps or, or anything like that, are you? No, I went to lots and lots of uh, 12-step meetings in the beginning, you know, Partly because we in Women for Sobriety, there's that recommendation. Hey, you know, we had one meeting week in, in the Seattle area, and I definitely needed to sit in a room with other people who got it way more often than once a week. Um, so, and I've learned um, some wonderful things in the rooms, um, in those rooms, and, and met some just really brilliant, wonderful, compassionate, loving people. So, um, you know, I think I have my own. Um, personal distaste for certain aspects, you know, like Mary Beth, I, I agree that, you know, I think the, the saying there's only one way to recover is a bit dangerous. Um, but, um, you know, if, if you, if people find 12 step concepts helpful, and there's certainly plenty of helpful things about the 12 steps, um, then you should do that, right? It's, there's enough recovery to go around. Um, <laughs> there's enough addiction um, that for all of us and, and different people are going to find different things helpful. And and definitely, I mean, you can't argue with the, gosh, almost 
hundred year history of success of the 12 steps they're, you know, they're coming up on a hundred years. I know it's crazy, but you know, I always, I always equate it to it's, I don't care what program you throw in there. If you have, if you, if you can find some people, in my opinion, that will just support you in your desire to get better and to stay sober, that is really what did it to me. They could have, I think that they could have put anything in else in, in there that I could have done, but it was those people that kept me sober. Sometimes I think I got sober in spite of, instead of, but um, I don't know. I, I, again, I'm not, I, I had a, I had a, I had a long experience of um, being a con- Conformist and then not conforming and having um, uh, some pushback over that, and so I'm 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 still kind of dealing with that a little bit. So <laughs> bear with me as I as I get through that. Now I do want to we've talked we've talked about a lot of topics, but this is one that I'm interested in that you that you suggested that we might even want to talk about, and it has to do with um, harm reduction and medicated assisted recovery. And I wonder if you can talk about that and how maybe that might fit into women for sobriety and even life ring. Well, for women for sobriety, you know, we we say we have a life-threatening problem that once had me, and um, we have a long history of um, supporting the body in numerous ways. Our, our founder was very into vitamins and um, supplements to kind of support the physical health, and we've never had any kind of taboo against medication in WFS. Uh, that is, that's between you and your doctor. And if it's, if it's helpful, if it's, you know, science backed, then that's what you should do again. You know, (laughs) if it works, then that's what you should do. Um, and you know, I've worked in medicated assisted recovery and, and I remember my interview, they said, you know, medication assisted treatment, should we call it harm reduction? I said, I don't think we should call it harm reduction. They said, well, what do you think we should call it? I, said, I think we should just call it recovery. <laughs> I'm like, isn't it just recovery? People are regaining function. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, this, this concept that you have to be completely sober, it's like, is someone only in recovery from diabetes if they manage to get off insulin? It's, no, no, there, <laughs> that's not how we talk about it. So, um, and I think, you know, harm reduction is really, it's just a different, often it's just a different degree of recovery, um, often when we talk about it. And I think we confuse those those other pathways. I know in, you know, she recovers is not abstinence-based, you know, and they'll, you know, they celebrate, hey, if I'm quitting drinking, but I'm not ready to quit pot yet, hey, that's awesome, because that's recovery. That's still recovery. And, you know, WFS does believe that um, abstinence provides the most fertile ground for emotional and spiritual growth. And that is one of our statements. The fundamental object of life is emotional and spiritual growth. So we do encourage women to work towards abstinence. And if you come to a WFS meeting and you say, I'm still smoking pot, we're probably going to encourage you to think about giving that up. But we don't celebrate days. Um, you know, we don't we don't count days um, in that same kind of way because we measure growth. And if you drank twice in the last year versus 365 times in the last year, like that is some phenomenal growth. And we are going to celebrate that. And- yeah. And uh, and Adrian's right. Women for Friday, many of the 
I, I'm sorry, for she recovers, many of the women are abstinence, but it's not a, a requirement for she recovers, at least for all pathways. Um, for lifering, our, S, our first S is sobriety, but that means uh, clean and sober from all drugs, except those that are medically indicated and taken as prescribed. And that includes medication-assisted treatment for substance use disorder. Lifering doesn't believe it's in the position to get between a member and their doctor. And so if they are taking as prescribed, then that is that still is sobriety and lifering terminology. Um, and I did also just want to mention the the harm reduction, one aspect of it. And I feel sort of obligated as somebody with 27 years and who was actually not just a methamphetamine um, addict, but I was an IV meth user. And I used the needle exchange when I was in the last five or so years of my um, substance use disorder. And I really believe the reason I was got sober and didn't have a lot of other medical conditions trailing along with me is because of that needle exchange. And so that's a type of harm reduction. I mean, in general, I support pretty much any type of harm reduction, but that's one that I know sort of has a, uh, a societal trigger sometimes that, it, you know, why are we doing these things, giving people, um, you know, safe injection sites or, or, or giving them needle exchanges. And for me, it, it's a health and wellness decision. And I, it personally benefited me. Yeah, it's life-saving. Um, I, I, I did an episode with um, um, an organization in Canada that runs safe injection sites in Toronto and Vancouver and it was fascinating what I learned from them about how, first of all, they do have um, safe injection sites in Canada that are um, sponsored and supported by the government that are totally legal, but they also have these pop-up injection sites that have that have popped up all over in different areas that the police are just allowing to to exist because they do so much good. I mean, they have saved lives. And so learning about that and then getting involved and connected with my with these peers in Missouri, I'm learning that even in Missouri, we're wanting to have safe injection sites. But the problem is we the um, feds will come in and arrest, arrest us, I guess, if we do that. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Do you know much about safe injection sites and how can we make that possible in the United States? Because I think it's in the United States where it's a problem. Yes. And so I, I have some knowledge, but it's not my total area of expertise. But I wrote a piece for the Philadelphia Inquirers um, that I support Safe House, which is their facility that's trying to get a safe injection site up and running. Um, and I it was they titled it. I'm I think it was I'm a former I'm a former federal judge and I support Safe House. And here's why or something along those lines. And uh, they they actually lost in court. They lost at the, the Third Circuit, I believe, is their circuit, because the federal government does have laws against um, giving someone uh, illegal, basically illegal drugs. You're not allowed to do that. And and Safe House had a lot of valid arguments. They had good legal counsel pointing out that it was really for a medical purpose. They actually weren't giving the drugs. They were just providing the facility and some of the paraphernalia for, you know, for clean and uh, safe injections. But it still wasn't the Third Circuit ruled against them, and they are in the process of appealing that. I know San Francisco has looked at trying to get a safe injection site up and running, and I think they were waiting to see what happened with the Philadelphia lawsuit before they move forward with that. But, but there is a lot of data from other countries that show um, how how many lives are saved, how actually it makes the community safer because people aren't injecting in the streets. There aren't dirty needles in the streets there. Um, there's just uh, it's it's 
it's a positive on so many different levels. It's just that it can be difficult, again, for people to really understand why they would be supporting this or why they would be having a service like this. People worry that it's going to bring more crime to their neighborhood when actually the data from other countries shows that it reduces crime. Right. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, um, the thing is that what I, what I was thinking about is that um, you're around other people, you know, you're, you're not, you're not using by yourself. So first of all, you're, you're less likely to overdose and die because you have people that will be there in the room who can keep you from dying, but you're also just having a connection with other people. So even if you don't decide that you're ready to give up the drugs at that point, I don't know. I just think being around other people and people who care about you can only help. That's true. I mean, they're offered services usually at these safe injection sites, but it's not pushed on them, right, when you're ready. And and that happened with me when I went to the needle exchange. I mean, they were very non-judgmental, you know, concerned, caring people. And they would check in with me. How are you doing this week? You know, you look a little more ragged than usual, Mary Beth. Maybe they'd say it nicer than that. But, and they would, you know, talk to me, have you had any thoughts about going into treatment? You know, if you're ever interested, we can provide you with information. So it was that a lot of doctors' experiences when you're in the middle of your substance use disorder can be problematic, but this was really a positive interaction with people who were who were caring and who really let you know that they were there if you wanted to take that next step. And I know they do that at the safe injection sites as well. Yeah, that, that means everything. Um, this has just been a fascinating conversation. I got more stuff I want to talk about. And th- this next topic is one that you guys suggested and is really become important to me over the last couple of years since I've just decided I don't want to be anonymous anymore. And that's recovery out loud. It's about being open about our sobriety. And can you can you talk about why you think that's important? Or do you think it's important? I think it's, yeah. I, so Women for Sobriety has a, you know, we we allow each woman to decide and we've always allowed each woman to decide. Um, and there are definitely women who choose not to be open about their recovery. Um, and we've actually, we were some of the pioneers in online peer support. We were online as far back as 1995 um, with online meetings and, and um, I think we had an AOL group. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and that was definitely, you know, attractive to a lot of women because they could remain pretty, pretty much completely anonymous, um, that way, at least to each other, maybe not to hackers. Um, but you know, the more we can show people that, you know, addict people with substance use disorders or addicts or alcoholics, you know, they're, they're not skid row under the bridge drunks or whatever you know the more we can show that that people do recover and that we're not all bad people we haven't all stolen from their grandma i've never stolen from my grandma not once not once did i ever steal from my grandma um so you know i think the more that we can role model that recovery is possible um the more hope that we give to people, the, the more we're going to destigmatize addiction. And I think the more we'll fight that, um, that concept of you have to hit bottom. I think that's a really dangerous concept. So the more I can say, hey, recovery works. And we've seen this, that, that bottoms are getting higher and higher. Right. As, as recovery has become more in, in the conversation, 
you know, we've even got this gray area drinking or sober curious movement, right? These are people who they probably, you know, maybe they've woken up hungover a couple of times and they're looking at that and going, is this what I want my life to be? Right. And that is because people are talking about recovery. So I think, yes, it definitely needs to be up to each individual. Um, and, and, you know, the more that we can recover out loud, the more we can show how much it's possible and, and the more lives we can save. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that. I mean, for me, as I say, it's hard to be more open in your recovery than to announce in the Wall Street Journal. Right. That you're, you're <laughs> an addict. Um, but even the IV side I talk about, I actually call my personal story from junkie to judge. And um, and the, the reason I do that is because I, I feel like there's a social resonance to both words, right? There's a positive social resonance to being, having been a judge. I, I, I'm retired now. And, but there's a negative social resonance to having been an IV meth that there's sort of a, a hierarchy in in society about about addiction it's better to, to you know drink alcohol than to pop pills it's better to, you know it's better to drink alcohol than to do coke it's better or meth it's better to pop pills than to shoot speed right i'm my use disorder was sort of at the bottom of the of the societal spectrum um but yet i recovered you know and i have 27 years and i had a good life and i've you know made contributions to society and i and i i do want to model that to just let people know that's possible and i particularly feel the obligation now that i'm retired because i can speak without professional ramifications and a lot of people can't and so i want to do that and i also feel an obligation because i have 27 years of secular recovery right a lot of people they went from doing the 12 steps into something else but i was i went to 12 step meetings but i never agreed with the the pro, the philosophy and i have 27 years and so i i you know just want to reassure anyone um including like the family members right i I think a lot of family members only heard of AA. That's all they know. And if their family member says, I want to do Life Ring or I want to do WFS, sometimes they get pushback. Like, are you serious about your recovery? And I'd like to say, just tell them, you know, Mary Beth went from junkie to judge and she did it the secular way. So it's okay, you know, that it's a viable path. It's equally effective. And if it's the right fit for you, then, you know, that's really what you need to do. I love that you did it from the beginning. And I've met some others that have too. I just admire that so much because uh, it just shows that you know you you just had you just had this belief in yourself that no that is not for me you know and that you had the courage to say that and do that and to find your own way it's just it, to me it's just absolutely remarkable because that was not my experience at all I was like whatever <laughs> whatever <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah but this being open about recovery for me has become so important over the last couple of years and it just got to the point where I've been sober a long time and I'm, I was tired of living a double life. I was tired of having to, you know, if I was going to go to a recovery conference or something and was going to take some time off work to have to keep that a secret from people at work. And so I just decided, you know what, I want to be the same person wherever I am. And so one time I, I was actually, I was taking off um, work to um, get my training to be a peer support specialist. I told my boss exactly what I was doing and it was just such a freeing experience. I don't think she even cared to know, <laughs> but just to be free to be able to say that meant everything to me. And like you said, Mary Beth, I'm in a position now where I can be, 
you know, when I was first getting sober, I might not have been strong enough to want to be out and open like it, but I, but I can do that now. And that's a service. It's a service for others. Yeah. I think living in my authentic self and being true to myself, that's a part of my empowerment journey. Mm -hmm. That's a part of, you know, showing up fully in the world as, as you kind of said, John, and, and, and being open about my recovery is part of that, right? It's a huge part of me. Um, I remember even at when I started at the methadone clinic and we were doing our, you know, our training and onboarding stuff and we were doing introductions in small groups. We had to say the thing that we were most proud of in our lives, our most, our, our most proud accomplishment. And I said, well, getting sober. I mean, come on. <laughs> and even in that environment, you know, a lot of people were like, taken aback, you know, and this was all kinds of different people, people in finance and people in HR, you know, all different aspects of the agency. But some of them were even taken aback that I just, you know, I just said it so openly and like, hey, recovery was my biggest accomplishment so far. <laughs> and um, but I want to I want to brag on that. Right. And I did, you know, I, I use women for sobriety from the very beginning. Um, I used to get people come up to me after AA meetings. What does your sponsor say about that? And they'd say, oh, well, you know, WFS is my primary program. Um, but I really appreciate the meeting today, you know, <laughs> and they would usually just look shocked and walk away. Um, um, but yeah, I think um, being true to myself and what was my recovery. That's also just, it's important to me and my personal recovery right. as well as to others. Yeah. So how can people learn more about women for sobriety, life ring and she recovers? So our website is womenforsobriety.org. It's all spelled out and it's plural, plural women. A lot of people will put woman. Um, so womenforsobriety.org. And then we also have an online peer support network, um, which is linked on that site. But you can also just go to WFS for women for sobriety, WFSonline.org. And um, we have online meetings there and a full site where you can leave messages and leave calls for support. And okay. I'll be sure to link those to the show notes and, uh, and YouTube um, so that people can find you and also your websites as well. So they can learn more about you. Is there anything else that we should um, disclose, talk about before we, before we sign off? Can I just mention our websites while we're doing it as well? Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, that that pushy lawyer. Um, so <laughs> so lifering.org is, is our website. A lot of materials, the meeting schedules, which are still mostly on Zoom. And sherecovers.org. Uh, my personal email is marybeth at lifering.org. And if you forget, I'm a board member. You can contact me there. And my personal website is actually junkytojudge.com. Junkytojudge.com. So. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, super. Thank you both. I've really enjoyed this. It was, it's a lot of, we covered a lot of stuff here, in a, you know, in an hour, um, but you're, you're both so, so knowledgeable and helpful. And thank you very much. It was just a real honor to have you both here and would like to have you both back again sometime, even individually be wonderful to talk about some of these topics in more detail. So thank you so very much. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. 
If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.